this one delivers. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Welcome to Skylight Books. How are you today? Yay! Yay! <laughs> Before we go on, I'll do the same. If we can just turn off our phones, cell phones, unless you're recording this moment, that's awesome, then please do. Um, let me just turn that off. There we go. That way it gets uninterrupted. We want to hear everything tonight. Um, if you are interested in events like these, please check out our website at www.skylightbooks.com. Normally we have a flyer for uh, March and April, but we don't have it uh, here today. And also, we're not really here for them. We're here for our guest tonight. So without further ado, um, our guest this evening grew up in the Philadelphia suburb of Haverford. After graduating from Harvard, she played squash professionally and was ranked number two in the country. She is completing her PhD in literature at the University of Texas at Austin. Her poems have been published in journals such as The New Republic, The Southwest Review, and Ellipsis. The Carriage House is her first novel. Um, it's, I have here a couple of really good reviews. One from the Boston Globe that says Louisa Hall has written a splendid, carefully plotted, open-hearted novel. The writing is strong. And Kevin Powers, the author of The Yellow Bird, says every sentence in the carriage house is full of clarity, attention, and grace. Louisa Hall is a writer to be admired. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Louisa Hall. Hi. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. This is my first reading ever, so I'm a little bit nervous. If I make a lot of rookie mistakes, you guys have to just let it go. <laughs> um, can you all hear me okay? All right, well, first I just want to thank Skylight for having me. Um, we just moved into the neighborhood, and we're so excited to be in a neighborhood with such a beautiful bookstore. So that's very exciting for us. Um, and also, I want to thank all of you guys for coming. I think all of you are my friends, <laughs> which is nice. Um, and I, in particular, want to thank my parents for coming down um, and for helping me so much with everything in my life. Um, and my best friend Ivy is here, and she helped me with this book a lot. She gave me a lot of notes and various drafts, so I'm really grateful for that. And my sweet husband, Ben, who's here, who also helps me with everything, um, and who I'm very grateful for. So... Yes, I'm grateful for all of you guys also, but I <laughs> shall not go through the rest of the list. <laughs> um, okay, so without further ado, I'll start reading. It's from the first chapter, so I don't think it needs much of an introduction. And then afterwards, we can talk more about other things. Okay. Chapter one. From the time that his daughters could lift their rackets, William had loved nothing more than to watch them play tennis. As soon as the workday ended, he hurried home to get to their afternoon clinics in time. In the winter, he watched them play in the indoor courts, surrounded by echo, reverberation, and the smell of thick tarp and synthetic felt. Later, when they were old enough to compete, William spent his finest weekends at their tournaments, moving between athletic facilities that started with time to feel like home. After years of watching them play, he had begun to feel that there was something important, something historically continuous about the ritual of, watching, of walking to the club to see them perform. The occasions for this ritual were less frequent now. Only when Diana came home from Texas for the ladies' club championship did he have the chance to resurrect that feeling, that crisp, fine pride of watching his girls on court. 
Elizabeth hadn't touched a racket since she took up acting. And now she'd committed herself to yoga, an activity that William could not bring himself to classify as an athletic pursuit. Izzy walked away from tennis for no apparent reason when she was 14. And when she did, it was as though William lost a daughter. She shed every ounce of the nimble girl she had been, becoming instead an adult young creature who both saddened and confused him. But today, the 2nd of June, 2000, he would walk to the courts again. Today, as he used to do so often, he had hurried home from the office, speeding along the treacherous curves of Kennedy Drive, propelled by his desire to see Diana play. He had jogged up the stairs to change into casual clothes, charged with the same excitement that used to thrill him when his girls were in tournaments. As he pulled off his tie, William examined himself in a mirror behind his closet door. He was still a fine-looking man. He had held up well. He hung his coat on a wooden hanger and changed into a yellow polo. He held his breath while he tucked it in, then took stock of himself once more. Diana had played in national tournaments. What was the ladies' club championship compared to that? But still, once more he would take his place in the lawn chairs behind the outdoor courts. Once more he would bandy jokes with the other members who would lean against the fence, hoping to catch a glimpse of his die. Once more her body's expert movements would awe them into silence, and afterward the two of them would walk home together, he and I, best pals, her racket bag slung across her back. Complete in his casual clothes, William, William hurried down the stairs. In the foyer, he stopped and looked out th through the living room window to see Margot planting Pacassandra under the third linden tree. She was kneeling with her hands in the soil, her dark hair falling over her shoulders. Beyond her, the carriage house stood ragged against the sky, a ghost of its former glory. In its shadow, Margot gardened, oblivious to its disrepair. Frustration spread through him. She had not remembered the significance of the day. She would not come with him to see their daughter win the championship match. She would only continue gardening, face forward, as though the world in which William and their daughters lived had disappeared behind her. In the kitchen, he passed Louise, absorbed in a gossip magazine, both feet up on a chair. William sometimes wondered whether he had accidentally hired her to lounge full-time in his kitchen rather than to care for his wife. Hello, Louise, he said pointedly, and she uttered something incomprehensibly Australian without looking up from her page. Goodbye, Louise, he said, amused with himself, then took an apple for the road and stepped outside into the fading afternoon. It was a perfect time of day. He had the sense that a net of light had fallen over the world. He crossed his yard and moved out onto the golf course that stretched behind the houses a little lane, smelling the grass beneath his feet, luxuriating in the give of the soil. He, William Adair, moved easily against the resisting force of the world. He was a presence walking across the golf course in his yellow polo shirt. This knowledge expanded him. He didn't turn to dwell on the carriage house. Instead, he moved forward, passing his neighbor's backyards. So generous did he feel, so vast, that he waved at Mrs. Cheshire, who was taking her laundry off the line. He wasn't annoyed by the flock of pink plastic flamingos that Sheldon Ball's kook of a mother had planted in their backyard and that Sheldon had failed to remove since her death. It was a pleasant sensation to lift so high above the issue of the flamingos, to ascend over the carriage house. He even waved at the Muslim man who'd moved in at the corner of Little Lane and Clubhouse Road. Usmani stood up, from what, stood up from whatever surreptitious hole he was digging in his yard. He glanced over his shoulder, turned back with a confused look, then lifted his hand toward William. William shook his head at his own high spirits. The clubhouse rose before him. Red brick facade, 
supported by white columns, settled between two magnolia trees. The symmetries of its architecture buoyed him. William was a man who appreciated columns. Rather than moving straight through the clubhouse, he took his usual detour down the back hall, lined with wooden plaques commemorating club tennis champions back to 1892. Under men's club champion, his own name, William Adair, appeared in gold paint seven times from 1967 to 1974. And on the ladies' plaque, William's girls. Despite their mother's genes, they were each born with enormous potential. Elizabeth was club champion from 1981 to 1983. At 12 years old, she beat Mrs. Weld with her stolid thighs and her passive-aggressive pacifism in neighborhood association meetings, with her sunny collusions during the carriage house coup d'etat. That was one of the best days of William's life. If only he could once more see Elizabeth running up to Volley, staring across the net with such intensity that Mrs. Weld started, crank started cranking framers up under the clubhouse roof, he would die a happy man. And then, from 1984 to 1999, Diana reigned. What a satisfying thing it was to see, that column of Diana Adair's. Fourteen of them lined up, interrupted only by those two disappointing years. No one at the club could match that. Not Jack and Elaine Weld with their simpering daughter. Certainly not that Cheshire girl. No, the clubhouse plaques belonged to the Adairs. Only Izzy was absent. There were, of course, a couple of Isabella Adairs in the girls' club championship plaque from the years before she quit. But she was the most talented of them all. William considered the carpet beneath his feet. It was more threadbare than he'd appreciated before. He would have to speak to the committee about recarpeting. The awareness that his clubhouse was fading lodged a quick pain behind his left ribs. His left hand involuntarily twitched. He clenched it into a fist. If only she would play again, everything could be righted. If Izzy would walk back out on court, her limbs swinging, the racket precise in her knowledgeable hands. Even Elizabeth could return to the game now that she was back from LA and her children were both in school. This prospect soothed him. The pain had passed in his rib cage, although his head had started to ache. William knew he shouldn't dwell on old defeats. It was enough that Diana still played, enough that he could still make the walk for the championship match. She wasn't finished yet. He'd picked her up from the airport three days ago, and when he saw her waiting on the curb, tears came to his eyes. She was standing, as she always had, with her racket bag slung over her shoulder, her hair in that familiar ponytail. When he pulled up, she swung the bag into the back seat, and it was such a familiar gesture that it pierced him to the core. His athletic girl, Every year, she came back for the championship. She knew it made him proud. Beyond the clubhouse veranda, the grass tennis courts stretched their backs beneath the sun until they reached the line of chestnut trees that bordered Brecon Avenue. In the stands behind court eight, Adelia had already found a place. She shaded her eyes with her hand and waved to him. William closed the space between them. Miss Lively, he said, taking her hand, playing a Victorian gentleman. She, grin she grinned the dear old grin. Sir William Adair, she said, of the Brecon Adairs. A pleasure, as always. She made a place for him at her side. It was comforting to sit with her. The pink cardigan she was wearing reminded him of the outfit she hated having to wear to church when she was nine years old, and the feel of her shoulder was as angularly girlish as it was when they played tennis on these very courts. Beyond the bleachers, Diana was warming up against Abby Weld. He hated to see her in that knee brace. But everything about her, else about her movement had the particular sureness that only truly gifted athletes possess. She would have no trouble in this match. 
Elaine Wells boasted about how happy it made her daughter to play. As long as Abigail's happy, we're happy, she liked to say with that ostentatiously shy smile. Varsity at Amherst is plenty good enough for us. But it was all baloney. What child is happy when she's losing? Not simpering Abigail Weld with her mother's thighs and her tearfulness. Twice in the club championships, William had seen Abigail Weld break down and cry. She was not a happy girl, and furthermore, she had a weak backhand, and Diana would clobber her. <laughs> Diana warming up was a thing to see. There was a fluidity to her game, a perfection of technique that made him relax into his seat beside Adelia Lively and feel the orchestra of his emotions tuning itself into a better harmony. The first game began and Diana served. Up the ball rose, up to its highest point, and Diana unfurled her body, liquid and matter at once, both feet lifting off the ground. Of course, at 28, she was no longer a prodigy. William watched her, contemplating this fact. When she came up to the net to take a sip out of her water bottle, he was surprised to realize that she was getting older. One does not expect one's children to age. She glanced over in his direction. She always found him in the crowd, even during her biggest matches. He pumped his fist in her direction. She nodded, returning to herself, then walked back out on court. And there was the slight limp she had never shaken after knee surgery. She wasn't the same after that injury. The year she was hurt, William continued flying to Texas for her team's biggest matches, but after a while it was just too grim, watching her sitting on the bench with that enormous knee brace, crutches by her side, when she was supposed to be number one on the team. When she came back for summer break, she'd changed. His Diana, who had always been so sure. Adelia tried to help, God knows, but despite their efforts, Diana had lost something. And where had it gone? Where do these parts of our children fly off to? Considering this, William felt himself growing out of tune. Out of tune and helpless, watching his daughter play in a way that struck him as hopelessly old. Beside him, Adelia squeezed his hand. If only Margot could be here to see this, she said. It was a silly thing to say, uncharacteristic of Adelia. William examined her profile. When she came back to Brecon, she seemed no older than the days when they played tennis after school. Then and now, people thought Adelia's looks were hard, but to William, she had always been beautiful. Her eyelashes and eyebrows were so blonde that her blue eyes seemed uncurtained. Her cheekbones were a warrior's. They deserved a streak of wet black paint. As Margot faded, Adelia grew more fierce, and yet she too was growing old. This realization darkened William's mood enough that he couldn't afford a false smile when Jack Weld trotted out from the clubhouse to sit beside Adelia. William, Weld said, grinning excessively across the line of her shoulder. He was the kind of man who sheathed his calculating nature in an overabundance of cheer, the type of enthusiastic spirit who might stab you in the back and pretend he was just playing tag. William did not return the greeting. Weld's presence revived his headache. This should be a great match, Weld was saying, but it would not be a great match. Abigail Weld was not even remotely in the same league as Diana. Weld stretched his legs. They were clothed in khaki shorts, culminating in a pair of weathered boat shoes. No socks. William hated sockless men in general, and in this case there was something particularly infuriating about the coiled athleticism of Weld's bare calves. What a day for a match, he said. Neither William nor Adelia was responding to him. He was engaged in a conversation with himself, forcing them to listen in. Listen, William, I'm glad I ran into you here. I've been meaning to talk to you. 
I wanted to say I'm sorry about the way things worked out with a carriage house petition. I find Anita Schmidt as odious as you do, but it looks like people are just ready to let it go. That's fine, Jack, William said, although it certainly was not fine. He refused to look at Weld. He wanted to be alone with Adelia. There was a clarity to her presence that he needed. She was so intently focused on the match that her nails had dug eight red crescents into her palms. Look, William, Weld continued, don't get me wrong, I'm with you. I understand the value of history on Little Lane. We have a past and it wouldn't be right to let it go like that, with a snap of a finger. It'll break my heart to see that carriage house torn down. But we have systems in place, rules for governance. We can't just ignore the vote of everyone else on the street. Adelia put one hand on William's thigh. What a point, she said. Focus, William, she's playing. You've got to watch this. But William couldn't focus. His eyes were losing their grip on the match. An image of his carriage house, decaying in Anita Schmidt's backyard, rose in his mind. It was a beautiful building once designed by his own grandfather, described in the papers as one of the foremost examples of shingle architecture in the United States. While other men of his generation dreamed of making their fortunes in industry, William's grandfather dreamed of perfect spaces, of rooms designed so that within their walls you became a better version of yourself, more capable and brave. That was the kind of blood that ran in William's veins. Inside the carriage house, there was one cavernous room and a loft under thick cedar beams. Encompassed by slabs of hewn wood, the air was hushed. It held promise. One corner was rounded into a turret shape. The roof was a series of intersecting gambrels, one for the turret, one for the carriage room, one for the owl's nest that peeked up over the loft. Outside, the shingles were white in the siding, dove gray on the roof, weathered by decades of wind. It was the kind of house that belonged in a windswept beach, confronting the tumult. That carriage house, as it was maintained in those days, inspired William to go to architecture school. It was all that remained on Little Lane of his grandfather's craft. The main house was rebuilt after a lightning fire, and since the subdivision, neighborhood covenants had all but, requ all but required the construction of stucco faux colonials. The subdivision, sloppily executed by William's father, so that the carriage house fell on Anita Schmidt's plot of land. And now the carriage house, too, had been sacrificed by the neighborhood association in their crusade for democratic mediocrity. How far it had fallen from its original form. His children had never known it as it once was. For them, it was a collapsing relic, rodent infested, the window in the owl's nest shattered and never replaced. William closed his eyes. He felt the crisp lines of his structure dissolving. Weld, he said, summoning his reserves. I will say this once, and then I will watch my daughter play. My grandfather built that carriage house. If Anita Schmidt would let me on her property, I'd take care of the rodent problem. It's a goddamn shame. That carriage house is my family. It's history. Of course, it's history, Weld said. But it's not actually historical, according to the County Historical Society. He lifted his palms, innocent as a murderous boy. I'm with you, but as president of the Neighborhood Association, I can't just ignore the petition. William's headache had escalated. It struck him that what Weld was doing amounted to aggravated assault. There were arrows of pain lancing the base of his skull, spots in the field of his vision. He pressed his temples between his thumb and middle finger, then tried focusing on Weld for one final word. I won't talk about the goddamn carriage house, he said. My daughter is playing tennis. If you will, I'm going to focus on that. Upon uttering this, he turned back to watch Diana, and his face went entirely numb.
That's it. <laughs> Do you guys have any questions or <laughs> is this how it's usually done? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. I was wondering what like, originally inspired the story for you. Um, well, actually, it's, I'm mostly inspired. I reread Jane Austen's Persuasion, which is kind of a similar story about an old historical family that has to leave their original house, their family manor house. Um, and kind of find a new identity for themselves outside of that house. So it was kind of inspired by that forum, and it follows some of that plot. There are three daughters and a very vain father um, and various things like that. And I felt very connected to that novel, rereading it, because um, it was sort of about somebody trying to figure out who they were in this new version of themselves. So they've, they've left their house. They're not quite as noble and established as they once were. And the middle daughter particularly has to kind of redefine herself after having had her heart broken. Um, but, and I was feeling sort of similarly, I had just moved to Texas and kind of left a whole life behind me, so I was feeling really interested in the idea of figuring out how you can start to be a new kind of self, having left another one behind. So it sort of started with that. And then there are various things that I've pulled from my own life. Um, we actually had a decaying carriage, it wasn't ours, but there was a decaying carriage house behind us, and there was a woman who lived up the hill from us who felt very strongly about her carriage house, and so that there was a bit of a feud around that, so that is drawn from my own life, but otherwise it I felt like I was kind of working with that Jane Austen book very closely. How long was the process of writing from, really from the, the first sentence to, to right now? <laughs> um, thanks, Ruggles. <laughs> um, it was... Well, it was interesting because I, I had written another novel before it that was dealing with very similar themes, and that took a couple years. And then I realized it was a terrible novel, so I threw it out. And then I started this one and wrote it quite quickly, actually, after that. Um, so I think this one, from start to finish of the first draft, was about three months, and then did a lot of drafts after that. Um, but this one went a lot more quickly than the previous one, so I have to think that it kind of came out of the previous one somehow. Can you talk about the revision process? Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I had amazing editors that helped me a lot. Um, at Scribner, Nan Graham, and Kara Watson also helped with the editing. Um, so that was really helpful for me, particularly because I'm in a PhD program for literature and I'd never actually taken a creative writing class. So I'd never really worked with anybody else um, on, on this kind of thing. So I feel like maybe this is different from other people's experience, but I feel like I learned so much from my editors. So that was a huge part of the process. And I did several drafts with them and they gave me many line edits. And I feel like I kind of relearned how to write sentences even with them. So that was huge for me. I don't, I don't know if that's always the case, but for me that was really a great experience. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. I feel like I'm in this audience to ask <laughs> How did your experience as a very successful squash player <laughs> your writing of this novel and <laughs> says the only other member of this audience who is a very successful squash player. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> oh, there too. And my parents, my mom, I think, was club champion at one point. Um, 
but I think, well, the experience definitely of leaving that behind, so having done that really seriously my whole life from the time that I was, you know, eight until the time I was 22, I had this sort of set identity as a serious squash player, and then I just left that behind, Ivy, to come out to Austin. Um, and felt like I had to sort of start over. And I had had all these ways of defining myself, you know, rankings and who I beat and how well I did in a certain year. And then I had to sort of start over without any of those ways of defining myself. So the sense of having to figure out who you are, having left a whole other self behind, definitely comes from that experience. I guess since you're a PhD, this more applies, but did you have specific times when you wrote every day, or did you more say, like, Oh, today I'll work on the book. And did you have to schedule a day? Because a lot of people say, you know, writing every day until really get you to do it. But what yeah. Was your um, well, as my husband can tell you, I'm a big fan of scheduling. So <laughs> I definitely scheduled time every day. Um, I and particularly with doing my PhD at the same time, I was teaching and um, taking classes. So it was kind of important to me to set exactly the time that I would work. And But actually, I would say that doing a PhD program is a great time to write a novel because you actually have a lot of time um, to do other stuff other than your work. And so it was pretty easy for me to set aside two or three hours every day that I would sit down and do this. And it felt like such a treat to sit down and do this because it was not my work. It was this special thing that I got to do on the side. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm working on a couple of projects right now, just other novels that I really love. Um, one is very different. It's about artificial intelligence. And then the other is about, well, I'm just going to tell you guys. <laughs> uh, the other is about a teacher who is in the, mid, in the midst of a feud at her school. So, um, yeah, it's her third battle at the school, and she's, she's got to win it. That's it. So thank you very much. Thank you. you. Sign your book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.